0: Hey buddy, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me, I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics. And so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics, with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date, January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. The form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. With words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus, Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I feel like doing now, and obviously last week, is talking about some Superman comics, and honestly, I don't really think there's any big reason for that. It's just that I love Superman, and sometimes I feel like talking about Superman comics. Sometimes the simplest explanation is, in fact, the real explanation. So, there we go. Now, I think I've said this on at least a few occasions in the past, but I think it's worth repeating that, you know, guys, I tend to regard that, really, that entire era of the Burn Age Superman beginning with Man of Steel Number 1 going right on through to the very end of Funeral for a Friend. I kind of regard that as being one of the great high points of Superman's entire publication history. Not just the fact that this is I guess the Superman of my youth, although they are certainly that, but I guess more from the standpoint that I don't know that Superman had been in such a cre- such a fertile creative period involving at least this many people before now yeah he's had a lot of fertile creative periods don't get me wrong i think the silver age is filled to overflowing with creativity the bronze age filled to overflowing with creativity so on and so forth but the simple fact of the matter is that what separates the burn age superman apart from everything else is the fact that it it was just such a collaborative effort you know I don't think it's unfair to say that the Silver Age Superman is in some way it's kind of the brainchild of Mort Weisinger, right? I think you could make that argument and I think there's a lot of merit to that. You know, and as far as the Bronze Age Superman is concerned, I mean, you know, people can say whatever they want that it that it's really the product of uh, uh, Julius Schwartz and Denny O'Neill. I don't really think I believe that. I mean, that may be how the Bronze Age Superman started on some level. But I think the more obvious creative talents behind the Bronze Age Superman are probably going to be Kerry Bates and Elliot S. Magan, right? I'm not taken away from the contributions of anybody else. I'm just saying that those guys did a lot more to set the tone for the Bronze Age uh, Superman than, say... Marty Pasco, right? So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But as far as the sheer number of chefs that are in the kitchen, it really is a, a miracle in some ways that the Burn-Age Superman is even readable. But I th- I'm i tempted to say that it, it's almost a miracle. It's almost like a, another miracle that it's actually as good as it is. And what I mean by that is, Guys, the the people who were leading Superman from 1986 going right on through to the to uh the end of Funeral for a Friend in 1992, you had some real heavyweights in comics. I mean, these are not nobody's guys. You know, you had you had people like uh John Byrne, obviously, uh Jerry Ordway, Dan Jurgens, Uh, You had Mike Carlin. I mean, all of these people had very successful, very influential careers independently of Superman. And so here you have all of them teaming up together, along with Roger Stern, another kind of red carpet royalty figure in comics. At one point, George Perez was part of the mix. And. By all rights, this should have been a crashing failure because of all of the egos that are that are involved here. But somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, everybody involved in all of these different creative decisions, they were capable of putting their egos aside and doing what's best for the story. Doing what's best for the characters. Doing what's best for the readers. And if you ask me, I mean, it kind of shows in the final product that, you know, people can still read these comics decades later and still get excited about them and have a great time with it and all of that. And, you know, I I just think it's a real testament to what they were able to achieve, that the results were not just good, but they were, in fact, they were not only great, but they were if you ask me, one of the great success stories of the 1980s and 1990s, you know, I mean, guys, big deal stuff that got a lot of uh, media attention, you know, stuff like Doomsday and Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Superman. Guys, that didn't just grow out of the ground. I mean, those stories were the fulfillment of a lot of talented people that were telling the very best stories that they possibly could. And there came a point when, You know, the mainstream, and I mean like the public, the unwashed masses, there came a point when the fucking mainstream started noticing, and I just think that's an incredible success story. So anyway, like I say, this is one of my favorite, just from a sheer creative standpoint, this is one of my favorite eras of Superman in all of history. And considering the fact that all of history encompasses the Bronze Age, guys, I want you to understand just how how big a praise that is, in my estimation. You know, I'm not just talking shit here. I really do mean it, you know? So anyway, now last week what I did was I talked about Adventures of Superman number four eighty one. And this is sort that that was sort of the beginning of an unofficial sort of two-part story. Uh, that was spread across two separate issues of The Adventures of Superman. And this, again, is one of those things that I don't know that the Superman books from this vintage, if they necessarily get full credit for. But guys, just think about this. I mean, yeah, everybody knows that the Superman titles at this juncture in history, they... They basically traded the story with one another. You know, a story would start in Action Comics, and then it would get continued on in The Adventures of Superman. Then it would get moved over to Superman, and then it it would get moved over to Superman, The Man of Steel. And you had all of these different books that are coming out that are basically progressing the same story every single month. And everybody knows that, you know. And I've again, I've gone on the record saying what an incredible achievement that is just in terms of having everything match up with everything else. You know, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears surely must have gone into that. Everybody knows that, all right? But one of the things that people don't usually talk about all that much is basically that sometimes, not often, but sometimes a story would, for lack of a better way of putting it, a story would begin in one, one of those titles, and then it would basically get put on pause, and then it would get resolved in the next issue of that title. And that's basically what we're talking about here. But if you want to, I guess, get sort of another example of that, there, this same type of thing was done with, I want to say it was the Adventures of Superman number 540 or something like that, but basically, it was the Night of 100 Thieves story. Uh, that basically there was the Night of 100 Thieves, and then after that, there was the Aftermath, and those were in two separate issues back to back of The Adventures of Superman. But they never really cr- the, that story never really crossed over into the other books, it was begun and then resolved. In two separate issues of The Adventures of Superman, right? And that same type of thing is what we're going to be talking about uh, today, which is kind of odd because again this is two separate issues of The Adventures of Superman. So that is probably about as good an introduction as anybody can ask for into The Adventures of Superman number 482. Cover date is September 1991. On sale date is July the 30th, 1991. Cover price is $1. Just think about that for a second. Writer is Jerry Ordway. Penciler is Tom Grummet. Inker is Doug Hazelwood. Letterer -er -er is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Glenn Whitmore. Editor is Mike Carlin. Title is The Planet Strikes. Story synopsis is as follows. Gillespie, a lieutenant in Intergang, meets with some local mafia thugs at an abandoned warehouse in the abandoned warehouse district to discuss how to turn the recently declared Daily Planet Strike into an even bigger, possibly bloodier mess than it already is. In the middle of the meeting, they find a shitload of skeletons, so apparently the parasite has been using that warehouse to store the bodies of his victims. As all this is going on, Thorn lurks in the shadows and watches the whole thing because this is the 90s and... People lurk around in the shadows a lot, watching shit go down. It was sort of a thing back then. Elsewhere, Superman drops in for a cup of coffee with Lois. They trade exposition for a while, and Lois informs them that the trade unions are striking against the Daily Planet. Clark muses that the writers and photographers aren't likely to cross that picket line either, which pretty much means that Lois and Clark are going to be working from home for a while. Elsewhere, elsewhere... Cat Grant interviews some of the Daily Planet employees. Sam Foswell declines an interview, which is kind of surprising since nobody likes him, so you'd think he'd be all over a chance for some kind of validation. But he's not. Jimmy pops in, and Cat tries interviewing him, but he also rejects her. Just then, the parasite interrupts everything, just kind of by showing up and making people get dizzy. Jimmy chases after him, meaning the parasite, with Cat along for the ride, but then the parasite gets the drop on both of them. Jimmy isn't a complete idiot, though, so he fires up his trusty signal watch. Superman swoops onto the scene and the fight's on. And it doesn't really go much better than the fight in the last issue, either, because, guys, let's face it, the parasite pretty much kicks Superman's ass. He then scoops Jimmy and Cat up so that he can bust some heads over at Star Labs, and ideally, Jimmy and Cat will be there to document the entire thing. Superman borrows a force field, uh, or rather, a force field belt from Professor Hamilton, and then picks another fight with the parasite at Star Labs. He lures the parasite outside, and members of the SCU start firing energy cannons into the parasite. The parasite's body absorbs all that stuff easily enough, but shit really hits the fan when Superman turns off Hamilton's force field belt and makes contact with the parasite, which overloads his body's ability to absorb energy. The resultant feedback, and God knows the resultant explosion, knock the parasite's ass out so the SCU take him into custody. All's well that ends well, so Superman flies off. No, sir. Don't thank me. We're all part of the same team. Night. The end. So, what did I think? Well, first off, this cover, it's not that there's anything wrong with this cover. I just want to put that in perspective, right? It's basically, you got the parasite, and he's cold-cocking Superman through what looks like a brick wall. Actually, no, it's not through a brick wall. In front of a brick wall. And there's... I don't know. I mean, it's a good cover. Don't get me wrong. But there's just something about it that's, I don't know, missing? Or there's something that, I don't know. It's just, for whatever reason, this is just not a very memorable image to me. Now, the reason I'm kind of harping on this is the fact that this cover for Adventures of Superman number 482 This is actually an homage to the Neil Adams cover of Action Comics um, number 361 by Neil Adams, which basically features a kind of similar uh, type of image. You basically got uh, the parasite on the cover of that comic, and he's uh, smashing the shit out of Superman, just punching him in the head. And clearly, this is the inspiration for this cover, for... Uh, Adventures of Superman number 482. I mean, it's it, it's actually acknowledged in a little signature on the cover. In the lower left-hand corner, it says, J. Ordway, open parentheses after, N Adams, comma, 1968, close parentheses. But if you need something a little bit more specific than that, the letter column, uh, at the very bottom of the letter column on the last page, it says, this month's cover was unearthed, or rather, unearthed, revitalized, And rendered by Jerry Ordway, open parentheses, inspired by the classic 1968 cover to Action Comics number 361 by Neil Adams, close parentheses. And so, like I say, it's not like anyone's trying to get away with anything here. I'm just saying that whatever it is that makes that cover just sort of work really well when Neil Adams drew it, that same type of alchemy just doesn't really seem to—it just doesn't seem to be in evidence, on the cover of of Adventures of Superman number 482. So, again, I'm not saying this to be disrespectful to Jerry Ordway because I would never do such a thing, but when the basic starting point that you're working with isn't really all that great to begin with, and I don't think the cover for Action Comics number 361 really is, if the basic starting point that you're working from isn't really all that great to begin with, then whatever you're attempting to do isn't going to turn out as well either. So anyway, no offense to Jerry Ordway, no offense to Neil Adams. I just don't think this is all that great an illustration as a comic book cover. So whatever. Your individual mileage may vary. So to get into the story proper, though, literally the very first uh, panel right here on page one is this kind of wide shot of the Metropolis skyline. Now, it's maybe not as wide as it could be, but we do see some recognizable buildings. You've got the the GBS building, the Daily Planet building, and then off to the right, there's the L-shaped Lexcorp building. And I just love shots like this of Metropolis, these kind of... They're not exactly glory shots, I wouldn't say, but they're just kind of good universe building. You know, it does... It's a good reminder that Metropolis is Metropolis. It's not a replacement for New York. Metropolis has its own distinct geography, its own distinct uh, landmarks, its own distinct uh, buildings, its own distinct, not well, not quite distinct architecture, at least not as distinct as I might like, but it, it does have a look all of its own. And when you get little panels like this, and you you would get them sometimes, but when you would get little panels like this, it's just it just goes that extra little mile to remind you that this is its own city. It's not a replacement for something else, or it's not a surrogate for something else. Metropolis is Metropolis. And I dig that. I really appreciate that. So anyway, uh, getting into uh, page two, this is basically... The kind of. This is the sort of scene that you guys have probably read a thousand times in a thousand comics. It's basically just a bunch of bad guys, hanging around in an abandoned warehouse, and it's all grungy and scummy looking in there, just really gritty. And the only light is coming from an uh, an overhead, uh, I guess, lamp. I don't even know what the hell you call those things, but whatever. It's that. It's basically a light fixture attached to uh, a power a power cord coming down out of the ceiling. So it's not exactly a chandelier. So I choose to call it an overhead lamp. And if you disagree, you're wrong. But anyway, point is, you've read scenes like this a thousand times. And so I can appreciate the fact that Tom Grummet kind of had his work cut out for him a little bit. In as much as how do you make a scene like this look interesting, like from a visual standpoint? And I don't know, it's it's okay. It works well for what it's intended to be, but it's, it's, and to be fair, I mean, it's not as cliche as it might, as it might've been. It's just kind of forgettable, you know, until you get to the bottom of page two, whenever you see all of those uh, different skeletons and whatnot. And that's when it kind of goes from being a little bit tropey to being a little bit macabre. And either way, it's, it's done well, you know, it's not like, tom Grummet reinvents the wheel here or anything he does a great job it's just to be fair to him it's really hard to make a scene like this visually interesting just because it's been done so fucking many times now you know so anyway moving right along we get into page three and this is really the only the only real glimpse that we get of clark kent in this entire issue actually are these a uh, couple of panels here. In fact, it's we basically get three panels of Clark, and they're all on page three, actually. But he basically checks in on his parents to make sure that they're okay. And of course, they're out like lights, because they've been on a cruise this whole time. And that's pretty much it for Clark in this issue. And then beginning on, like right here on page four, we get this really good, it's almost a pinup shot of uh, Superman uh, swooping out of uh, Clark Kent's apartment. He's basically on his way to Lois Lane's apartment. And again, you know, I mentioned a, a kind of a similar glory shot in The Adventures of Superman number 481, where I kind of compared it to Kurt Swan and the pose that he used, that Tom Grummet used on, on that page in Adventures of Superman number 481. It just reminded me of the kind of thing that Kurt Swann might have drawn. And here, this isn't really the type of pose that I could picture Kurt Swann doing. This is a little bit more in line, I think, with the type of poses that Tom Grummet would, at least in my opinion, become a little bit more closely associated with. But it's almost like it's equal parts Tom Grummet and maybe a tiny little bit of Wayne Boring, you know, just, just the, the pose that Superman is in here, I really like it, I mean, I'm not, you know, everything I've said about Tom Grummett so far, it's almost been like it's been kind of a passive-aggressive insult, and I don't really mean it like that, I'm just saying, really, the first thing that comes into my mind, because I don't usually podcast using notes, so I usually just Say the first thing that comes to mind, and I don't know, maybe this is one of the consequences of that. Maybe I should start using a little bit more notes. Huh. I don't know. I'll think about that. Anyway, moving right along, we cut to Lois Lane's apartment where, and this is actually just a kind of a neat little moment. I love this moment on page five. Lois is clearly not a morning person, right? She's laying in bed. And she hears the phone ringing, but because she's in kind of a sleepy stupor, she's punching her alarm clock, saying, no, 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 10 more minutes. But the ringing persists because it's not her alarm clock that's going off. It's actually her phone. Remember when people had landlines? I do. Anyway, and basically she gets a call, and this is actually going to get expanded upon momentarily, but I just, the point is, I just like this little moment in the first panel. It's Lois just punching her alarm clock. I don't know why, but ever since Erica Durant started up on Smallville, I've always kind of regarded like this iteration of Lois that we're seeing in Superman comics. I guess starting with... I guess starting with Action Comics number 643 and then going right on through to maybe superman the man of steel number 27 the lowest lane that we see during that i guess that two or three year sort of interval it just it always seemed very erica durants to me you know obviously i didn't notice it at the time because fucking nobody knew who erica durants was but i'm just saying that ever ever since erica durants started on smallville and i went back to reread these issues I just couldn't escape the, how similar, like visually similar, but also just like in terms of character, how similar this depiction of Lois is to Erica Durant's, you know, it's just kind of interesting. So whoever did casting for Smallville, man, they really were paying attention. Or maybe it's all just a coincidence. I don't know. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Coke here hmm good stuff for those of you who don't know by the way for those of you who are even interested which I'm sure is nobody what I usually do is I go to um, the gas station and I usually get my drinks there and typically, not always, but typically what I do is I get those one liter sized bottles. I don't mean like those big two liter bottles. I mean the relatively smaller one liter bottles of Dr. Pepper or Mountain Dew or Coke or whatever my thing is going to be. And usually I just uh, sip off of that all day long. And usually, like what I've noticed is usually these one liter bottles will last me about a day and a half. And they go for like... I think it's like a buck 79 or a buck 89 or something like that plus tax. So basically, for two dollars, I can get a shitload of coke. Now, I could also go down to the vending machine here at my apartment and pay a buck 50 to get a like an 18 ounce bottle of coke. And like I say, that's a buck 50. So let's see, I can pay a buck 50 for an 18 ounce bottle. Or I can pay a buck eighty-nine plus tax to get a, a one-liter bottle. Gee, tough choice. So anyway, any, anyone who's interested in that, which again I'm I'm sure is nobody. Well, here you go. So anyway, getting back into the comic though, uh, Superman swings by Lois's apartment basically to, you know, just chit-chat with her, drink some coffee, and just kind of hang out. And he ends up getting shot down on, on coffee because all she has is some orange juice. And so this, this is one of those scenes that, honestly, we don't really get very much of after Clark Kent has revealed his secret identity to Lois. We don't really get very many scenes like this where Lois just kind of loses herself for a second. He, she sees Superman knocking on her window And she she, uh, shouts, Superman, instead of shouting, Clark, you know, and it's a world of difference between the two. And I don't know, I mean, we got, we get a little bit of it here. And I think there are, there are maybe like one or two more instances of this. But, you know, for the most part, this is, this isn't really something that got played with all that much. And I'm not criticizing anybody for that. I'm just saying, I kind of like the idea of Lois having to make adjustments, you know, to not only having Clark in her life now, but now she knowingly has Superman in her life as well, right, in her personal life, and that would require her to make adjustments, you know, and yeah, you know, you can infer that she made a lot of adjustments, but it would have been nice to see, I guess just to see that stuff done a little bit more explicitly. You know what I mean? So anyway, not criticizing anything. I'm just expressing a preference. That's all. Anyway, so I do kind of like the image, though, of Lois kissing Superman. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be said for the, the visual image of Lois kissing Clark. But to me, there's just a different... I don't know. There's a... There's a different sensibility that goes into it when Lois kisses Clark versus Lois kissing Superman. You know what I mean? And I just like the idea of seeing Lois kiss Superman. I don't know why, but to me, there's just something that's just neat about that. I don't know how else to put it. It's just neat, you know? So, anyway. Now... At the bottom of page six, we get this kind of neat little... It's just... This isn't really a panel that you can skip past, just sort of in passing, but it's not really like this big splash type of a page either. It's just very well done art. But if you actually pay careful attention to it, as far as I can tell, the perspectives and the anatomy, the eye lines, everything on this... Uh, uh, in this last panel at the bottom of page six, it's actually extremely well done from a technical standpoint, you know? And I just like the idea of Superman flying through the city, right? I mean, look, guys, I love the Christopher Reeve Superman movies as much as the next guy, I suppose. But, you know, the thing is, I don't know what happened in those movies, but it's like the instant Superman starts flying around in those movies, it's like the directors of those movies wanted to put him out in the fucking middle of nowhere in the desert. And I don't really get that, but I mean, it is true. I mean, if when you look back at it, there's that one really memorable sequence in Superman the movie where basically Lex broadcasts out that announcement that only canines and Superman can hear. And then Superman flies through the city looking for Lex Luthor. He tracks the signal back to Luthor's hideout. And then they, you know, whatever happens after that happens after that. And, you know, whatever. But that's really like one of the few occasions when Superman flew through the city in really any of those movies. And I don't know why, but I think half of the, the awe and the spectacle and the wonder and majesty of Superman is seeing him fly through the city, you know? Because there's just something that's, that's what that, that's our day-to-day life, right? That's what we're surrounded by. And to see something as, let's face it, fantastical as Superman in that relatively grounded real-world setting, I don't know why, but it's like it somehow helps sell the illusion of what Superman is. And it somehow makes everything else easier to accept. You know, and one of the things that I kind of liked about... Man of Steel is that, except for that little bit at the beginning, or not at the beginning, I guess uh, near like about 45 or 50 minutes into the movie, where Clark finally gets his Superman uniform and then he flies from the Arctic basically back to North America and he flies through all of these different environments. He flies through the Arctic he flies through it looks like just uh, some kind of very arid and desert uh, type of environment and then he flies out over the ocean I mean he flies in a bunch of different environments that's the fucking point but otherwise I mean you get that really neat scene that really I guess epic battle sequence with Zod at the end of the movie and Superman and Zod then start flying around through the city and that's just fucking eye candy love that stuff and you got a little bit of it in, um, in uh, Batman v. Superman. Uh, there's that moment where Lex push, uh, he pushes Lois off of the building. Superman catches her. And then they just uh, fly back down to the surface level. Then Superman flies back up. And then later on, uh, he meets with Lois again. They have their little moment together. And then Superman just flies off again through the city. And I just fucking love stuff like that. You know, and I mean, I'm not saying that I want a movie where it's nothing but like two and a half hours of Superman just flying through the city, you know, because even for somebody like me, that'd get kind of fucking boring. But, you know, it's just the directors that we've had up to now, it's like they haven't really completely explored like what that really looks like, you know, The idea of this guy in a cape flying around through the city and how awesome that is. And I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that's got a real boner for that. I don't know. But one of the main gripes um, that I had about Superman Returns as a film was the fact that, yeah, you had a couple of scenes, really, where he flew through uh, the city and it could have just looked so fucking cool. But unfortunately, a lot of the CGI and stuff that they used in that movie, it's not that it's it's not that CGI wasn't capable of achieving those type of effects. It's just that the CGI shots they used in that movie fucking suck. And so, yeah, you get you kind of get bits and pieces of him flying through the city. It just doesn't look all that good. You know, and I just it's just such a damn shame, you know, cuz if nothing else good could have come out of that movie, and I'm starting to think that nothing else did. At least there could have been that, you know? But it just fucking never happens. And whatever, I'm really rambling here. So anyway, to get into it, we get another kind of shot like that at the top of page 7 where Superman again is flying through the city and I just eat stuff like that up with a spoon. It just looks so fucking cool. Anyway, so, moving right along, you get this kind of neat little moment on uh, again. This is page seven, where Kat tries her level best to score an interview with uh, with a uh, Foswell as he's walking into the Daily Planet building, and it kind of stands to reason that you know what management probably wouldn't want to comment publicly on a strike that's still in progress, you know because. Literally anything that you say to the media could be used to derail your negotiations. So really the best thing you can do is keep your mouth shut. And I don't know why, but it's like everything that Foswell does, it's, it's like, it's hard. It's hard to see the good in it, you know, because the guy's just such a cold hearted, just kind of prick that even if he's making the right decision, it's still sort of hard to accept that, that you know, this is in fact the right thing. It, it, it's like everything this, this guy does, it comes off like, man, what an asshole, you know? So, and that's kind of the, the situation here. It's like intellectually, I know that as management, he needs to keep his mouth shut in front of the media, you know? Except for saying no comment. Those, I mean, literally, those should be the only two words that come out of his mouth. No. Followed by comment, that's it. And I know that, but for some reason, it's like everything this guy does, its it just has this, just kind of dickhead kind of quality to it, you know? I mean, you could I, I don't know this to be true, but I always kind of had the idea that if you could ask Foswell for the time of day, he'd give it to you. And after he does, you would think to yourself, man, what an asshole. You know, even though all he did was give you the time of day. I don't know. There's just something just fucking unlikable about this guy. And I don't get it. Anyway, so moving right along. Uh, page nine. Basically, you've got uh, Jimmy Olsen chasing after the parasite. And then he kind of loses his balance for a minute. And, you know, this is one of those moments when I kind of have to question whether or not Jimmy has a survival instinct. Because, I mean, dude, you've been living in Metropolis for a long long time. I mean, of all people, you should know that weird shit happens here. Okay. People die here from crazy things all the time. And so if just being around somebody makes you dizzy and kind of nauseous, and it makes other people dizzy and kind of nauseous, You know what? That could be nature's way of saying, Hey! 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 Maybe we should stay away from this guy. Maybe we should call in some help. But it's like... Jimmy just doesn't really have that same survival instinct. I mean, look, my God's honest opinion is if... If something like this had happened to Lois, yeah, she'd probably follow after anyway, but number one, she'd be on her guard. And number two, she would call Superman at the first sign of trouble, but it's like, that just doesn't occur to Jimmy. He's not on his guard and he only, he almost forgets about his ability to use his his, his uh, signal watch to call in reinforcements from Superman. It's like, man, you just don't fucking wanna live, do you? So, I don't know. I mean, of all characters that have ever been in Superman comics, I've always figured that Jimmy Olsen's probably the, the only one who's been like fucking this close to winning a Darwin Award at any given moment, you know? And I mean, he's the kind of guy, just to tell you how just fucking stupid I, I, I think Jimmy Olsen probably is, he's unemployed right now, right? So I kind of have the idea that if somebody said, somebody came up to him and said, hey, Jimmy, here's what we need you to do. We've got some Olympians here at the stadium. They're training for the Olympics next summer, and we need you to catch their javelins and catch their shot puts. The fucking idiot would probably do it, you know? And shit, not only would he do it, he'd probably do it for minimum fucking wage too, you know? I mean, just the man has no survival instinct. my God. Anyway, so, whatever happens, happens. Jimmy calls in help from Superman and Superman doesn't disappoint, swoops into action, drops a metal drum around the parasite's upper torso and then just smashes them against the wall. Basically what he's trying to do here, in case it wasn't obvious, is avoid making physical contact with the parasite's skin, right? And basically if you can have some kind of a buffer between you and the parasite so that you can beat his ass that way, well, that's not a bad way to do it, now is it, you know? And certainly that is what Superman's up to here, and hey, dude gets an A for effort, you know? I'd never say otherwise. But, I don't know. I guess it's gonna, it's just gonna take more than that to take the parasite out. And guys, here again, Jimmy just has no fucking survival instinct. I mean, look, if I see Superman and the parasite duking it out with each other in the middle of an alley, guess what I do? I'm out of there, right? I'm running for my life, because you have no idea what direction the heat vision could be flying at that at that moment and if you ask me it's definitely time to get the hell out of dodge right now look i'll cut cat grant a little bit of slack here because it's her fucking job to be there you know now i again here i i would want to say that it's probably in her best interest maybe to fall back a little bit just get some empty space between her and this fucking riot that's erupting in front of her but guys fucking jimmy doesn't have a job he doesn't need to be there right in fact it might actually be better for him to not be there you know number one it's one less hot uh one less hostage for the parasite to take number two dude you stand a better chance of living to see another day if you just move over a few steps, or for that matter, a few blocks. You know, seriously dude, run for your fucking life! I mean, how brilliant do you have to be? But no, he just stays there. I just don't fucking get it. Now again, Cat Grant has to be there. You know, I mean, her employer pays her, I'm sure, very well to risk her ass this way, so, you know, whatever. But Jimmy, dude, there's no way you can help. All you can do is get in the way. Fucking get out of there, you know? So, whatever. So, after that, things go more or less about the way you'd expect. The parasite uh, kicks Superman's ass around a lot. And then, surprise, surprise, he takes Jimmy hostage. Well, nobody could have predicted that. Anyway, moving right along, getting into page 17 here. Basically, you've got Professor Emile Hamilton. He stops by uh, Hobbs Lane Bar and Grill so that he can flirt with the waitress there, Mildred, and finally pluck up the courage to ask her out on a date. And, I don't know, I mean, I've always kind of liked Hamilton. I don't necessarily like all of the extended cast members in these Superman comics. Keith and Myra, I'm looking pretty much right at you. I don't necessarily like all of the supporting characters in these Superman comics, but I've always, I've always just liked the idea of Hamilton and Mildred ending up together. You know, I, I just, I like that. You know, they're both from the wrong part of town and they both, they've seen their share of just weird shit. They're probably from the same neighborhood. I don't know. I just like the idea of those two ending up together. I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I like it. Anyway, so the cops, uh, the cops swing by says, hey, we need to borrow your force field belt. Let's get to it. So anyway, next the, we get the, the thrilling conclusion where, basically, Superman dukes it out with the parasite again. And this, again, it speaks to what Superman does really well. Yeah, he fights harder when he needs to, but as much as anything, he fights smarter. You know, he knows that, look, if I try trading punches with the parasite, that's just a losing proposition for me. Even if I've got this force field belt, he still has at least some of my powers and I know from first-hand experience, I'm not exactly very easy to take down, and so what he does is he takes the fight outside and then he finds a way basically to lure the parasite out into the open so that he can spring the trap. You know, the idea is not necessarily to uh, pummel the parasite into oblivion. I mean, look, if you can do that, fine, but that's not the idea. The idea is to use methods, to use strategies, to use tactics against the guy so that you don't have to, to, to beat his ass. You know, uh, he's basically going to be his own undoing. His own physiology is going to be his own undoing here, you know, and I like that. You know, Superman, yeah, he's a brawler. He's an ass kicker. He's not afraid to knock somebody in the middle of next Tuesday if he has to, but that's not necessarily what he always does to win. I mean, as often as anything, he'll use his opponent's weakness against them, and I like that, you know? It, I just like the idea of Superman being shown to be a thinker, you know? Anyway, getting to the bottom of uh, page 22, though, we see Rose pop up, and we, behind her is a sort of imaginary illustration of Thorn, and basically you have Rose thinking to herself, what is it that seems to draw me to these crime scenes? It's as though some part of me wants to get involved, And, of course, her split personality fucking does want want her to get involved. But I realize this is setting up goings-on in Action Comics number 669, and that really relates to... And that's the next comic that comes after this in the chronology. But it's, it's like, Thorne doesn't really do too much of anything in this issue. Rose doesn't really do too much of anything in this issue. And it's just... I get it, you know? They have to set up her appearance in the next issue of Action Comics, so fine. I'm just saying that N- nothing really comes out of her appearance in this issue, you know? So, anyway, that's not good, it's not bad, it's just fucking true. Overall, I really dig this sort of little miniature two-parter here in Adventures of Superman, I always did. This is; These are just fun comics, you know? And Superman, he's not up against some giant wor- world-beating threat. He's basically, he has to contend with the parasite running around wrecking shop on everything, you know? And, I don't know, it's just, it's a fun story. That's the point. It's a fun story. Now, there was kind of a weird little moment, um, actually, and I realize now I sort of overlooked it, but there was a kind of a a weird moment that came. This was on uh, page 10. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. Uh, Jimmy thinks to himself, as the parasite's attacking him, Jimmy thinks to himself, I almost burned in that Newstime fire because I was too proud to ask Superman for help. And then there's that little asterisk. Next to that section it says, in that Newstime fire, there's a little asterisk. And it's like it's supposed to call your attention to, and the Newstime fire occurred in issue number blah 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 blah, and that is nowhere to be found. It's like they remembered to put the asterisk in, but not the... like that little notational reference. It's like they forgot to put that in, so pretty fucking weird actually so anyway otherwise though that's pretty much what i you know all i really had to say about um adventures of superman um number uh, 482 so anyway i think that's pretty much it for me this week now as to next week i have no idea what i'm going to be talking about i just know that it's going to be awesome see you guys then used tombstones trick your friends scare the shit out of your relatives or keep for your own personal use after you shuffle off this mortal coil magnus used tombstones perfect for people with names such as john smith billy bob cletus sideburn jimmy hoffa nathan bedford Forrest, joseph stalin and dozens more magnus used tombstones the best used tombstones, this side of the other side. Some assembly required. No warranty expressed or implied. Void where prohibited by law. Batteries not included. Some tombstones may be damaged from armed military conflict or nuclear testing. Not recommended for children under the age of 25. which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trenismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled... T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 true freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18.